Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Happy New Year, and welcome to Tales to Terrify. My name's Seth, managing editor, and Drew has turned the keys to the show over to the back office team for a few weeks, which should give you an opportunity to meet some of the people who keep the horror flowing behind the scenes. So, while I usually spend time reading submissions, wrangling the show schedule, or narrating, Getting out in front of you all is a nice change of pace. Though I'm learning that it's not as easy as Drew makes it look. Tonight is New Year's Eve. Many of us will raise a glass in celebration of accomplishments over the past year and our hopes of the year to come. Tonight I raise my glass to each of you. This year we were able to receive enough support from our patrons and supporters to be able to offer a token of our appreciation to our narrators for their work. This is a huge step for Tales to Terrify, a goal we've been working towards for a long time, and it wouldn't have happened without you, our patrons, and our supporters. 
thank you. And moving into 2022, we're heading towards yet another milestone for the show. Tales to Terrify will be celebrating 10 years of delivering frightening fiction to you, our listeners, weekly. To date, we've produced about 900 stories, coming in at over 2,850,000 words, and we're still going strong. To that end, we're open for submissions and currently accepting works up to 10,000 words. All the particulars are on the submissions page of our website, and you can email the fiction team at editor at Tales to Terrify if you have any questions. But basically, children of the night, if you have a story, send it in. The slush team's waiting. Now, lastly, Meredith, our fiction editor, has a few questions she'd like to ask. Do you have good taste for horror, an eye for grammar and story, and a few hours a week to spare? If so, we're looking for a few slush readers, and if you're interested, email Meredith at editor at talestoterrify.com with a note letting her know what you think makes a good story. Okay, well, now on to what we all came here for. Our first story of the evening comes from Billy Pritchett. Billy Pritchett is an assistant professor of English at Kingam University. He has an MFA in creative writing from Murray State University. His work is forthcoming in Conco River Review, Delmarva Review, and Pensive. Children of the Night, join me for The Woodcutter's Axe, a Tales to Terrify original. A soaked woodcutter wept beside the river, having dropped his axe, his livelihood, into the water. The god of honesty appeared by his side, and, touching the woodcutter's shoulder, asked, Why are you crying? Walking near this edge, the woodcutter said, I stumbled, fell in the river, and dropped my axe, which was carried away. If I don't recover it, I can't provide for myself and my wife. The god of honesty dived beneath the water and came up holding a golden axe. Look at it, sunk. Here it is. The woodcutter said with sorrow, Thank you for trying, but that's not my axe. The god of honesty dived again and came up with a silver axe. Is this yours? I'm sorry, sir, but that's not mine either. The god of honesty dived one last time and came up with a crude stone axe. The woodcutter came alive, standing up and declaring, There it is! That's it! The god of honesty handed the man his axe, as well as the axes made of silver and gold. He said, Keep your own and sell the other two. You'll have enough money to support you and your wife. You'll never have to work again. If anyone asks you how you've come to your fortune, tell them you are honest that honesty is rewarded, dishonesty punished. 
The woodcutter thanked the stranger. Don't thank me in vain, the god of honesty said. I'm not to be betrayed. Tell it how I said it. I promise, said the woodcutter, his feet already carrying him into town, to the market, where he sold the bequeathed axes, then made his way to his and his wife's one-room cabin. His wife said, Home so early? Did you already sell the wood at the market? My life as a woodcutter is over, he said, showing his purse full of gold. She held the heavy purse, checked its weight, then laid it on the table. It jingled when she put it down. Did you steal this? she asked. A man, he began, planning to answer truthfully, but thinking his wife would not believe him if he told the story of the axes and the promise he made to the stranger, instead said, A man of charity gave it to me. I appealed to his sympathy. That night they went to bed, and in the darkness the god of honesty appeared, found the woodcutter's axe, and using it, opened the woodcutter's face. He took the purse full of gold before he left. The next day the woman woke to a blood-soaked bed, her deceased husband beside her. She looked from his face to the table, saw that the money was gone, and knew that he had lied to her. That was The Woodcutter's Axe, as read by Alexi Goddard. Alexi is a Toronto-based supporter of small press publishers and audio drama podcasts. In past lives, he's been the drummer of opening bands you were not around to witness, the videographer of the Infinite Sound Music Flock, and in 2020 made his voice acting debut on the Vast Horizon podcast from Fool and Scholar Productions. In his spare time, he paints miniatures to assuage the guilt of his ever-increasing to-be-red pile. Thank you, Alexi. Our second tale of the evening comes from K. Lynn Harrison. K. Lynn Harrison is a forum moderator for Holly's writing classes. When she isn't writing or cracking down on shenanigans, you'll find her along the riverbanks in the rural Midwest with a camera and a sketch pad. You can get in touch through her website, reprobatetypewriter.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Miss Everett Says, A Tales to Terrify, original. The past's the past. Miss Everest didn't look back. That woman is not your mother, child. Not any more. But no. The old teacher put both hands on his shoulders and did her best to move him along. The other children were already going. No buts. They change after we pass over. 
I've seen folks trying to go back often enough to know. But I'll tell you this now. That thing looks like your mother. Maybe it sounds like your mother. But it isn't. Not anymore. Rory tried hard to listen, but he didn't believe her. Miss Everest had kind eyes and a gentle smile, and there was no reason to think she'd try to hurt anyone, but he knew that thing was his mother. He shuffled his feet and kept trying to watch his mother. They do try to draw you back to them. I know that. As long as they're alive, you'll hear them calling your name and saying the kind of things you want to hear. Oh, they know your soul. They know how to lure you. The more Miss Everest scolded him, the more certain he was that she was wrong. He knew it was his mother calling to him. She was crying. She missed him. She couldn't hug him, of course, and he was so sorry he'd ever wiped off her kisses. He was a big boy, but not that big. But she would smile at him when he came back. Oh, how he wanted to see her smile again. And she would know he was there, and things would be different, but they would be happy. She had probably already forgiven him. Didn't she promise she would never yell at him again? And then he was home. The house hadn't changed much. His toys weren't on the lawn anymore, but he told himself that didn't mean anything. Pick up your toys, both his parents said it. They told him to pick up his toys more often than he could count. And then he died, and someone had to pick them all up for him. He held his stuffed elephant a little tighter and kept going. Dad would be done with his crossword soon, and Mother would be waiting. The door opened for him. It seemed to open anyway, and he stood inside his home for the first time since... He wished Miss Everest were there. She'd know what to do. He missed her too. But this was home. Home. He thought about how surprised his mother would be when he ran to her. How she'd laugh, or maybe even cry, and how everything would be all right again. His mother finished drying the last dish, drained the water and wiped her hands. The same little sigh she always gave when she finished something. The one that said, and sometimes she said it too, at least that's done. Miss Everest was wrong. His mother was just the same as she'd always been. Even the way she looked over the kitchen to be sure everything was done. Nothing had changed. Not really. He watched her take off her apron and giggled. His mother's head lifted. She turned toward the sound. He hid just in time. She didn't see him. He was her sneaky boy. She'd laugh and laugh when he ambushed her. She'd hug him close and turn him upside down and tell him all the horrible things policemen did to the pirates who got caught. But then she'd cut a piece of raisin cake to share. Just this once. She always said that. Just this once. But he always got a slice of cake the next time. He giggled. He was going to give her his bouquet and let her eat the half of the cake with the most raisins and tell her the half he took was just a little bigger, even if it wasn't. He giggled again. His mother moved closer. That was the moment. He jumped out of his hiding place and ran, ran fast, threw up his arms and shouted, It's me, Mama! 
Then the surprise on her face melted. It's Rory, Mama. And there was nothing. She took a step backward, stumbled, and caught herself on the counter. Silence, except for a little squeak when she finally remembered to breathe. She fell backward and squeaked again, trying to get up. No, not trying to get up. Trying to get away. She stared at him the whole time she was trying to get back on her feet. Rory moved closer. He didn't quite... Something was wrong. He knew that. His mother was sick, maybe hurt. He needed to help her. Mommy? But she was already pulling herself together. She pulled in a deep breath, looked again, convinced herself that she did not see, that she didn't see anything in the half-dark hallway. She turned on the lights, all of the lights in the house. And when she came back, she looked right through him, as if he wasn't there. Mommy? She pulled her sweater tighter. Perhaps it was time to turn on the heater, he thought. Winter was always closer than she realised. She picked up all the things she had knocked over. The vase, the photos, the coat she'd pulled off its hook when she tried to get up. She laughed at herself. Seeing monsters in the dark at my age. Same as she used to when she took him back to bed after a nightmare. She left the hallway lights on anyway. She went back to the living room. Rory stood there, alone, watching her go away. Mommy? He said again. Mommy? That was Miss Everett Says, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning author and editor living in Aotearoa, New Zealand, four-time recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award and three-time winner of the Australian Shadows Award. He has narrated fiction for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Pseudopod, among others. His horror and dark fantasy short stories have been published worldwide. He is the author of the grim, dark, steampunk, madcap fantasy series Children of Bane, starting with Brothers of the Knife and continuing in Sons of the Curse, Sisters of Spindrift, and Daughters of Dust. And he co-authored the supernatural, tech-noir crime thriller series The Path of Ra with Bram Stoker Award winner Lee Murray. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Thank you, Dan. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Our final story of the evening comes from Adele Gardner. Adele Gardner has a story forthcoming in Analog and poems in Strange Horizons, Dreams and Nightmares, HWA Poetry Showcase 6, and others. This gender-fluid night owl loves Halloween, watching samurai films, reading comics with cats, and working in the darkroom. Learn more at www.gardnercastle.com. Gather around, children of the night, for In Our Boxes, which first appeared in the Gothic.net webzine July 1998. The year that I was ten, my father packed us all in tiny boxes and drove to California. The Easter grass rustled around our ears and tickled our noses, but father had clamped our lids down tight and we were not allowed to sneeze. We rattled along the rutted roads through Kansas and eastern Colorado, feeling the heaviness of that flat sky pressing above us, our eyes unblinking beneath the wooden box lids only the occasional jolt of the car causing a slow wink. Our hands grew stiff and cold as we waited for Father to take us out. Finally, he lifted us, boxes and all, and set us on the concrete. Boulder, Colorado. He had bundled us up to leave us at Grandmother's house on his way to the coast to visit his sister. I heard a hollow echo as his door slammed before he drove away. Grandmother pried off our lids slowly, with shaking hands that scarcely touched us as she peeled away the wrappings. She helped me stand. For a moment, the faded turquoise eyes reminded me of Mother's, but then Uncle Ted's boots clumped up the sidewalk, and her eyes skittered away like marbles. With a tug at the hem of my dress to straighten it, she turned to the other boxes. My brother Bertie blinked against the sunlight, his fine golden lashes almost invisible, his button nose rumpling with sleep. Stupid with it, he yawned finally, his eyes hazed, standing still where grandmother had placed him. Little Mary didn't take nearly so long to wake. Her face crinkled and she began to scream. I had dreaded to take her out. They took us inside and changed our clothes. They put us to bed. We rose when they waked us. Uncle Ted climbed mountains, and Grandmother scarcely ever spoke. In the silence, I waited for the phone to ring, for a disembodied voice that resembled Father's to tell me tinnily that he had reached the coast. But sometimes, I forgot to mark my little handmade calendar, 
and days slipped by in which my wishing might have brought a card from father. The boxes stood neglected in the hall closet, draped with shadows that hung from their cracks like cobweb. While I prowled the house, my brother and sister played blocks in Chinese checkers. All of us were careful not to disturb grandmother. Though no one came to check on us, Bertie and Mary followed the rules quietly. I never heard the shrieks that had enraged me at home. None of the scratching or hair-ripping when my brother had held her close and whispered in her ear that she would have to go to retard school, where the other monsters would jump on her and bite her back. At home, father had grown sick of the noise. His eyes had glazed when he had to look in Mary's direction. Finally, he'd not seen any of us and had packed us all up tight. But Mary had been mother's favorite, until mother's sudden death. During that last week, she'd sung for Mary and spent hours combing hair that she described as chocolate luscious, angel fine. Though Bertie and I stepped between mother and her mirrors and wound up all her music boxes, she no longer noticed our porcelain complexions or radiant golden hair. We had broken the music boxes. Mother had died. Now we had Mary all to ourselves. Despite what mother said, we knew that Mary was ragged and dirty, and we hated her with her short, ratty pigtails and slow brown eyes. Weeks passed, and Grandmother woke us every morning in the gray hour before dawn, touching each shoulder without a word, then drifting upstairs to hide herself in the blue room. I began to suspect that our obedience was hopeless. There had been no cards from Father, no pictures of airplanes that turned into stickers or puzzles, not even a card saying, get ready to leave. I wandered about the house, touching china figurines of portly monks. We did not have to be so nice. Now, we would make them notice us. My brother and I slept in the guest room with the double bed. Mary was too young and had to be put in the crib down the hall. Bertie and I whispered to one another in the powdery darkness. Father never liked her. She's such a whiner. He must have left us here because of her. We should get rid of her. Scare her to death. She can have a heart attack. He'll have to come back for us. He won't have any reason not to. Head pressed against golden head and limbs twined, childish limbs under the covers. Smooth and soft and cold. The next day, I joined their games. My brother and I played as a team, never letting Mary win, even if she made the right rolls. Finally winning even the box and the rubber band. She bellowed. My brother and I laughed at her. But we kept glancing toward the stairs. No one came down. Not grandmother, not uncle. And when our sister screamed and pounded up the steps... We knew that the wan gray figure would not drift out of the locked blue room, even if Mary hurled herself at Grandmother's door. The next day, we played with tricycles, with the pogo stick and skateboard left by Uncle's kids. Only old people lived on Grandmother's street. They would not bother us on the sloped sidewalk or under the pines, on whose wide, soft beds we hunted toads. We put my sister in the wagon. She suspected nothing. Even when my brother pushed and let her go, she went chortling down the hill. She thumped down the curb and rolled through the first intersection. 
When she reached the corner with the stop sign, we turned away to watch the mailman's progress across the neighboring lawns. The next day, a man returned her to us. She looked naked and vulnerable without her case, lying across his arms like linen, her snubbed nose delicate and small, her fine hair curling over her forehead like strands of copper wire. Bertie and I crept closer. No breathing stirred the gingham dress. She looked almost angelic. But then the man set her on her feet, apologizing. Mary instantly scurred away to hide beneath the trees, glaring out at us with a rat's eyes. The man left, and Grandmother went back inside without a word. We pretended not to see our sister, though her monkey's face hung sullen in the pine. We walked about the patio, arms linked, lifting our chins and speaking in refined, lofty voices about what we would do in Paris when Father came and carried us away, leaving that brat behind. After that, Grandmother set Uncle to watching us when we went outside. Uncle Ted carried us on his shoulders. We took him into our confidence. Wail as she would, my sister never got a ride. Uncle Ted claimed that he was afraid she'd put his eyes out with those sharp claws. Uncle wore cheap plastic boots, faded jeans, and a white undershirt, and always kept a black comb in his back pocket. We convinced him to take us climbing in the foothills near Grandmother's house, leaving Mary behind. She slouched behind fences, following us with her goblin legs, making faces like an ogre. We threw sticks at her and took turns riding Uncle Ted. When we came back, she'd have made mud pies all over the front lawn with a garden hose. Uncle squashed them like cow pats beneath his cowboy boots. When it rained, Bertie and I sat outside with Uncle Ted on the patio wall, under the grape arbor. Mary sulked indoors. The rain splatted on the thick grape leaves overhead, and Uncle blew smoke rings with his pipe. Mary's face suddenly popped up in the window at ground level. She stuck her fingers in her mouth and pulled her lips wide. I scowled at her. Mary leered back with her hateful buck teeth. Pretending to ignore her, I turned to Uncle Ted. Can you make smoke signals? He agreed in his flat, nasal voice and propped one boot on the picnic table while he sucked in a long breath. The first was obvious. A rock. A mailbox. Then they began to get harder, as he wanted us to guess exactly what types of flowers he'd blown. Now make some words. Messages. To him, Uncle asked, his smile curving to the right of the pipe stem. Bertie giggled and poked me, then leaned forward and whispered in Uncle's ear. Uncle Ted guffawed. As we waited for the next signal to flow from his lips, my brother rocked up and down in his shoes, smiling, his lashes glistening in the gray light. Uncle Ted pursed his lips and blew. I squinted after the pale, wispy shapes. They wavered and floated away. What does it say? I can't read it. Uncle pulled the pipe from his mouth and intoned, Mary is a fink. My brother and I burst into shrieks of laughter. A moment later we stopped, startled, as the window shattered and shards of glass tinkled onto cement. Bertie clutched my arm as a different shriek roared within the house. I felt cramped that evening during dinner, as I had within my box while father drove away. 
Mary had thrust her fists through that window, and now Uncle Ted had gone. After he'd seen Grandmother tying the raw flesh, he climbed back up the mountain. I stared across the table at the bloody bandaged hands that smeared Grandmother's lace. Mary ate with those hands, as though nothing had happened. Of the four of us, she was the only one to clear her plate. That evening, when dusk set little sparks of fire whirring through the air, I took Bertie and Mary to the playground halfway down the hill. In the dimness, anything might happen. Perhaps Mary would not come back. We climbed out of the silent house, through the broken window, avoiding the kitchen where Grandmother hunched over the sink, a heavy force, listless as a wall. As our feet skipped steps with the steepness of the hill in the pale evening light, I concentrated on the echoes of our footfalls, on the garrulous birds, on the whistling of the wind in the treetops. But Grandmother's silence followed me on two stumpy legs. Mary wouldn't speak to either Bertie or me, though Bertie jumped up and down behind her, grimacing and making wild signs with twigs. The playground was deserted in the dusk. After I'd pulled Mary over the fence, she ran to the other side. She stayed away from us, sulking, huddled on the swings or motionless seesaw while we walked stiff-legged atop the ladder that crossed the jungle gym. My brother and I challenged each other to balancing games until one of us would pull the other down to roll laughing breathlessly in the cold white sand. When we stood on the pole that spanned the wooden castle and log cabin, we helped each other across, arms across shoulders like sibling acrobats. By the time the light failed, the only thing left we hadn't dared was the monkey bars. We climbed up the outside, across the triangles that formed the egg. When we reached the top, Bertie wanted to slide through an open triangle and race down on the inside, hand over hand. I don't think we should. That's concrete. Where's Mary? He just started down the inside when a black shape whizzed through the dark to clang against the monkey bars. Hey, stop that! He screeched. I scrambled down. A thud. A shriek. My brother dangled from one arm. Jim! His high voice pierced my ribs. I dropped to the ground. Where was Mary? Then I saw her, hiding behind one of the anchor posts, her arms full of rocks. In the dusk, her face looked red and crinkled as if she'd just come out of the box. Before I could stop her, she hurled another rock. Bertie's hand released with the suddenness of a spring. I flung myself against the bars. My brother made no sound as he fell. He struck with the ringing shatter of a hollow bowl. By the time I'd squeezed my way between the bars and crouched beside his golden head, the yellow liquid had trickled out to pool beneath his split face and cracked white limbs, spreading about his body to shimmer like yolk in the dying light. Mary darted in through the bars. She stopped on the porcelain pieces of his head, laughing, and scurried away into the darkness. My limbs felt cold, smooth and slick as Bertie's when I reached out a finger to touch him. Every brush of the wind scraped along my skin, raw as if I'd never been outside my box. I groped cautiously across the concrete, gathering Bertie. 
The pieces of his skull were damp and sticky, and I tore off my blouse to wrap them. The pressure of tears choked me as I felt about for the last of him and could not find his blue left eye. Straining to see, I struck out across the playground. I hugged Bertie against my chest. Weightless in my arms, he felt as hollow as I did. Faint footsteps followed. Shivering on Grandmother's front porch, I thought I saw the moon-pale glow of Mary's goblin face beneath the pines. Without switching on the lights, Grandmother opened the door. I rushed past her. When I tried to set Bertie on the rug, I discovered that his dampness had stuck him to my undershirt. Grandmother, you've got to help me. I clutched her arm. She didn't say a word. She walked towards the closet, pulling her arm from my grasp. The closet door yawned on blackness. Though I couldn't see them, I felt what lay in the back, sharp as splinters. Their wood creaked as she heaved them free. I ran back to Bertie. Grandmother dropped his box beside him, folding back the lid. For the first time, her silent bulk seemed comforting in the darkness. We laid him in the box, straightening his limbs, folding his arms so that the hands rested on his upper thighs. Grandmother removed the bandage I'd made of my shirt. While I watched, she closed the lid and held it down. I pressed my eyes closed too, trying to wish Bertie alive. A soft scraping. Bertie? Knocking. I jumped up wildly as a sudden pain stabbed my heart. Grandmother knelt beside Bertie's box, pounding nails through the lid. What are you doing? I screamed. I tried to knock the hammer from her, but she shrugged me off. As she banged the last nail into Bertie's box, a scream rose from outside. Something pounded frenziedly at the door, like the wind slamming shutters. Grandmother walked back to the closet. Two more boxes thudded against the polished pine floor. I looked wildly about the room, then tore down the curtains, looping the ends about my hands. I nearly laughed when a goblin's snub-nosed face frowned back at me through the window. Mary had pressed her nose and palms flat against the glass, and her eyes gleamed like the moon caught in a well. She gestured to be let in. Tiny signals like Bertie and I had used. Clenching my fists in their loops of curtain, I waved her back, then slammed my arms through the window. For a bright instant, shattering glass showered outward in a glittering stream of light. I kicked out the shards, and Mary clambered through the hole. Grandmother turned, Mary's slim form darting towards the kitchen, rekindled my courage as I stood facing Grandmother with the swath of curtain slung between my fists. In the shadows, Grandmother's face looked hollow-eyed as an empty marble mask. I trembled at the box yawning behind her. Small footsteps pounded furiously back to the living room. At Mary's angry screech, Grandmother's head jerked. I grinned and caught Grandmother in the face with the curtain, my flying leap hurling her off balance as she struggled with its folds. She staggered toward my box as I jumped clear. Grandmother's form shrunk as the box swallowed her. She fit perfectly. Her wizened hands crossed over her blue apron, 
The wrinkles below her gray curls formed folds, sad and sinister. Over her chest, the lenses of her gold-rimmed glasses glinted like the plastic of a doll's. I slammed the lid shut and sat on it. Mary chuckled behind me. A rough scraping followed as she dragged her box toward ours. Drawing my legs up, I pounded nails through the edges of my box. Just as I finished, Mary shoved her box against mine with a thump that jarred me to my feet. She grinned up at me, giving her box one last kick. A slow smile warmed my face as I saw what she held. One of Grandmother's kitchen candles. Its blue heart dancing within a flame that sent shadows leaping merrily over the walls. And bands of light ripping over the rich brown of the boxes. Lighted from beneath, Mary's face took on a Luciferian radiance. Kindly and menacing. The mischievous gleam of her soul, a beautific compliment to my own. I stood respectfully out of the way. Bowing, Mary touched the candle to the middle box, her own. The flame leapt up immediately, licking around the lid, melting the finish to golden brown. Stepping with an elfin daintiness, Mary dipped her wand to anoint the next two boxes, investing them with fire. While I cheered, she danced about the room, lightly touching the remaining curtains, the piano, the doily-covered couch, her feathery pigtails beat as gently as tiny wings upon her neck. We stepped outside, and she christened the doorposts with fire. Laughing, we ran off into the night, the bobbing candle lighting the way. When we reached the end of the street, a warm shudder passed through us, like the shivering of a snake as it sheds its skin. As my box crumpled into ash, I could feel it sluicing from my back and leaving me straight, whole, free. Mary grabbed my left hand and we sneered at each other slyly as we went skipping down the street, our limbs pallid in the candle's glow. The clasp of our fingers felt cool and smooth as our boxes were consumed with fire. That was In Our Boxes, as read by Meredith McNeil. Meredith McNeil is an actor and comedian living in Los Angeles. You can find her performing improv, or walking, seemingly forever, with her dog, Presley. Thank you, Meredith. Children of the Night, the hour is late. And we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by our patrons and supporters on PayPal. Thank you. If you're not currently a supporter and would like to be, visit www.patreon.com slash tales to terrify for all of the perks, ad-free and extended episodes, and merch pack. Our show is produced by Drew Sebastini. Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, 
and myself, Seth Williams, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Children of the Night, join us again next week as we prostrate ourselves before the right and ancient gods. Here, a Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.